This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Monday, October 4th, 2010. I'm Caleb Brown. Keeping the United States free and prosperous depends on not Europeanizing the economy, the healthcare system, and attitudes toward immigrants. Daniel Hannan is a member of the European Parliament and author of the new book, The New Road to Serfdom. He believes the cause of the United States, limited government, and free markets is rightfully the cause of the world. You talk about Europeanizing various aspects of uh, policy in the United States, and you make particular note of immigration. What is Europeanizing immigration, and what would that mean for the United States as you see it? Well, it's not so much the the, the, the immigration. It's what you then do with the immigrants that's being uh, Europeanized. Um, the U.S. has traditionally been incredibly successful at assimilating settlers. Um, there was that, that wonderfully characteristically optimistic phrase of Ronald Reagan that every immigrant makes America more American. The country was set up to do that, and it's done it very well. People very quickly shed their old, old identities and, and become uh, loyal and enthusiastic citizens of the New Republic. That hasn't happened recently in Europe. There's been massive post-war immigration in Europe with nothing like the same degree of assimilation. And that has to do not with the people who are arriving, but the society into which they arrive. It's very easy to adopt the identity of a self-confident nation. It's very easy to want to be part of a polity that feels confident about itself and projects that optimism. And you have that to some extent uh, in the US. You really don't have it in Europe. In Europe, the prevailing orthodoxy is that the nation state is finished. We all have to be governed by Brussels. Patriotism is discreditable. And of course, look at it then from the point of view of the, of the newcomer. If that's what he's hearing all the time from the elites of the country in which he's settled, what is there for him to be proud of? What is there for him to belong to? And so it's perhaps not surprising that he starts casting around for alternative identities. And that, in a number of European countries, is now becoming a serious social problem, that you have alienated minorities, second-generation immigrants usually, people born in that country, who feel very limited loyalty to it, or in some cases feel so alienated from it, that they're prepared to take up arms against it. We've had cases in, in the UK of boys born in the United Kingdom who are prepared to cross half the world in order to take up arms against British servicemen in, in Iraq or Afghanistan. We had two uh, British citizens, people who were products of English schools, who went to Gaza as suicide bombers. Now, something has gone badly wrong when a society is so embarrassed about its past and its present, when its elites have so systematically traduced and derided any sense of national belonging, that products of its schools feel that they are pushed into overt enmity. The United States has had a similar issue with Muslims being raised in the United States who were essentially radicalized in the U.S. and then take up arms overseas. But I, I sense that that is for a different reason, that there is a cultural resistance in parts of the United States to the assimilation of a lot of these people. Well, also, it's, you've got to look at the numbers. I mean, in, in any society, you will have some violent young men. You know, you will have some teenage boys who, who go beyond Sturm und Drang and become uh, pathologically violent. Um, the Baden-Meinhof gangs, the Red Brigades, the IRA, whatever. And you're bound to have an element of that in, in any society, including in immigrant Muslim 
societies. But if you look at the overall numbers, I mean, there are about as many Muslims in the US as in Britain, Belgium, and the Netherlands combined. It was big numbers. It, you know, there aren't uh, religious census data here, but depending on whether on how many of the, the 20th century African-American uh, Muslim organizations you count as properly Muslim, it's between two and a half and four and a half million people. And the overwhelming evidence is that most American Muslims are very pleased to be here, very happy, patriotic. And in fact, they, they, they generally register a higher uh, score on having a positive view of the US than their non-Muslim neighbours do. Now, that is not the case in, in Belgium and the Netherlands. Uh, you have a lot of, of much more alienated uh, Turkish and Moroccan second generation people in those countries who, whose loyalty to their new country is very weak. And it's not because, you know, it's not because they're different. They, they, they were coming from similar uh, backgrounds to the ones who came to the US. It's because they arrived in a different society and one that, that taught them that it was, it was discreditable. You know, it... <laughs> It's very the, the the symbols and the the visual signifiers of U.S. patriotism are a, a tremendous aid to assimilation. You know, if if people are, are taking seriously Independence Day and Thanksgiving and so on, it's very easy for a, somebody to buy into that wherever his parents came from. But if you live in a place where there aren't even passports, you know, where we now we've been now been Europeanized into having a common EU passport, you know, uh, where uh, national identity is is regarded as kind of one step away from ethnic cleansing. Well, is it any wonder that you start looking back towards where your parents came from and thinking maybe there was something there? One of the biggest concerns that uh, I hear from uh, my colleagues here at the Cato Institute and uh, elsewhere is how the rule of law has been. Uh, challenged by the Obama administration. How does the rule of law, you spoke of czars uh, handling certain policy issues in the U.S., and that certainly seems to subvert a rule of law in favor of a, some individual with a, a certain authority. How does that match up against the last hundred years or so in Europe? Yeah, I mean, we are way ahead of you on that road. Um, Britain is now mainly governed by what we call quangos, quangos standing for quasi-autonomous non-governmental organisation. And the truth is that they are the source of power in contemporary Britain. Um, I tell you this as somebody who's been an elected legislator for 11 years. Um, and if you speak to, to, to a representative of any British political party, if he's being honest, he'll tell you the same thing. Nine times out of ten, you get a letter from a constituent, the, the, the only honest answer you can give him is, I will pass your request on to delete as appropriate the Highways Authority, the Child Support Agency, the Learning and Skills Council, the Southeast of England Development Agency, you know, or, or any of these other quangos. And of course, the, the, re, the result of that is that it delegitimizes politics because people quickly realize that their elected representatives are not able to do anything for them anymore, that they've become a sort of parasitical class. And that makes them resent the whole system and actually makes them give up on the very notion of parliamentary rule because they, they can see that it's a, it's a farce. Um, that's the most deleterious impact that it has. It's expensive as well, of course, you know, because obviously <laughs> if you have budgets being set by members of the executive who personally 
stand to gain from higher spending. You're, you're going to have higher budgets than if you have budgets set by legislators who have to answer to the taxpayer. And on those grounds, the, the coalition government in the UK is now closing down huge numbers of these quangos. We've just um, we've just marked for destruction, as it were, 167 of them in the last couple of weeks. But the saving of the money is a happy side effect. The real purpose of scrapping these agencies is to restore honour and purpose to the act of voting so that where you mark your cross on the ballot paper starts to matter again. Just quickly, uh, evaluate the Tea Party movement in the United States based upon what you write in your book and uh, what you would like to see uh, the United States achieve. I mean, abroad, um, the Tea Party movement is a tremendous joke. Uh, European commentators are conflicted about US elections. In theory, they find them vulgar and degrading. In practice, they find them completely gripping. And of course, the Tea Party allows them to indulge both of these tendencies simultaneously. So uh, for the last couple of weeks, the only story about the Tea Party has been Christine O'Donnell. You know, look at these funny people. This one used to be a witch. Um, And it, it doesn't occur to critics that, you know, what with the state of the economy and the healthcare reforms and so on, witchcraft might not be the top issue in the election, that there may be uh, another reason. And another reason indeed to explain why uh, Tea Party-backed candidates are winning and, you know, have have displaced a number of incumbent Republicans and are leading their opponents in a number of polls. There was a wonderful headline online in our main left-wing newspaper a couple of weeks ago, which was, unelectable woman wins Delaware primary. (laughs) <laughs> you know, she can't have been that unelectable. Um, and this is a real a real problem for them. And what they will say is, well, this just shows what we've always known, that the Americans are peculiarly right-wing and, uh, and impressed by these kind of kooky candidates. Of course, the truth is, the reason why the Tea Party is a uniquely American phenomenon is because open primaries are a uniquely American institution. In almost every other democracy, candidates are imposed by the parties. They don't come up from the constituency. And so voters are habituated to being ignored. They are accustomed to being taken for granted. They know that not only on tax, but on immigration and on European integration and on crime, on a whole bunch of issues, their opinions will be disregarded because the elites control the the selection of of candidates. And so that's why, even though the proposition that taxes should be cut would be as popular in Britain or in Brazil as in the US, uh, there isn't a mechanism uh, to to carry that argument from the country to the political class. It's worth just adding that despite all the blaggarding, despite all the propaganda, all the attempts to portray the Tea Party as a sort of lynch mob or a, or a gaggle of, of stump-toothed bearded mountain men, people haven't fallen for it. There was a poll on Sunday showing that most American voters regarded the Tea Party as more moderate than the Democratic Party. And in a way, I'm I'm pleased about that. It shows that the ideal of a popular movement against an overweening government, which was how the Republic was founded in the first place, still has resonance here. Of course there are going to be some unpleasant people in in an organisation that big. Of course, there are going to be some people who have racist views, as there are in the Republican and Democratic parties, as there are in any big organisation. But given the basic proposition that spending and borrowing and taxation are too high, most people will quite rightly regard that as, as a reasonable and moderate point of view. 
Daniel Hannan is a member of the European Parliament and author of the book The New Road to Serfdom. You can read more on limiting government, federalism, and free markets at Cato.org.